0: Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Diversity is not about counting heads, they explained to me, it's about making heads count. So it's not just how we're different, but it's how we're the same and how do we leverage those differences for the greater, higher performing team.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from our guest for this week's episode, Lisa Ong. A national director in the Office of Diversity with PricewaterhouseCoopers, or PWC. You're really going to enjoy this episode on several fronts. First of all, Lisa shares her winding career journey and how she started in a quote typical audit role with PWC and then later ventured into the HR function and now more recently into their diversity office. Secondly, Unless you're already a diversity expert, you're definitely going to learn a lot about the field of diversity and how many blind spots most of us truly do have. It's a really fascinating and truly important area. Lisa is also going to share some online resources with us in this interview, so make sure you visit the show notes page as well for links to those at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. That's whereaccountantsgo.com for the show notes page with links to all the resources she's going to discuss. Here we go with Lisa Ong from PwC. Well, hello,
2: Lisa. Thank you again for accepting the invitation to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you,
0: Mark. I've been really excited. This is my first podcast.
2: <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I was doing some research on potential guests for the program, and I found your path there at PwC to be very intriguing. I know that many times we start our careers along sort of a traditional road, you know, an audit or tax or financial accounting or, or whatever it may be, but then we get opportunities to go into other adjacent areas and can really find good meaning and enjoyment in those roles as well. So I think your story is going to truly benefit our audience, particularly for those looking to do different things along the way. Before we get into all your, your more recent positions at PwC, though, let's start at the beginning so that everyone gets an idea of, of how your career has progressed, so to speak. How did you decide to become an accountant in the first place? Well,
0: that's an easy question because my father was an accountant. I'm a third-generation Chinese-American, dutiful, oldest daughter of three, so I tended to follow whatever my father recommended, and he said, accounting's the language of business, and he said, I want you to take accounting in high school as your elective to try it, and my parents always emphasized that you have to get a good education and, more importantly, make a good living to take care of them when they were old, so... Dad said, yes, I really want you to be an accountant. And he, what he says goes, my second sister also became an accountant. So we both followed the rules. My third sister became a teacher. The other reason I took accountant was I was actually pleasantly surprised when I took it in high school that I loved it. I loved how everything flowed together when we were preparing the financial statements and journal entries. I know that sounds a little nerdy, but it really clicked for me. And my accounting teacher pulled me aside and she said, I really think you should pursue this as a major in college. And I don't think teachers often recognize how their words can be so influential, right? Normally, we would push back if our parents said, we want you to do this. But having her affirm what my father was asking me to do and recommend that to me really helped cultivate that interest in accounting and nurture it for me. The other thing she pointed out to me, and I already knew this about myself, was I loved reading when I was growing up. I was particularly drawn to mysteries like Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown. I love those TV crime fighting shows, too. So I think I'm just naturally wired to be a curious person. My husband and daughter call it nosy. (laughs) But I love, I love to figure out how businesses work, how they made money, how do they manage the controls. So auditing was just a natural fit for me because of my audit skepticism, and you get to use your interviewing skills. So it's like you get to be a four-year-old and ask, well, why? How do you know? Why? So that's how I got to be an auditor.
2: Interesting. Interesting. You know, that, that's come through as a theme on several of these podcasts, how influential those early teachers really are in our careers. And it's it's those little comments they make that really affect the rest of our lives. It's it's a a daunting (laughs) task that they have. (laughs) So did you go straight through college the whole way you knew you were going to be an accountant?
0: Yes, after that first accounting class. It just clicked, and I kept sticking with it, and I was getting good grades, and it kept reaffirming for me that this was truly the accounting was the language of business, and I was pretty fluent in it, especially going to the University of Texas at Austin. It's a very competitive school, and so the fact that I was able to do well there, everyone was telling me, keep sticking
2: with it. Okay. So what was your first first position out of school? Or did you do I internships? Went,
0: yes, I went into an audit internship, a summer audit internship. I interviewed with all of the big four firms. And the reason I did that was because my father told me, (laughs) he said, go with the biggest firm, look for a place where you can have a career, not a job. So you really want to look for those firms that you can really invest your career in. And the other reason he steered me that way, of course, was because PwC was their auditor, so he knew them very well. But he said, I want you to interview with all the big four and make your decision. So that's what I did.
2: Okay. I'm curious, how much did the fact that PwC was the auditor for your father's business influence your final decision?
0: Well, actually, there was another firm that was offering $1,000 more on the offer letter. So, I was leaning towards that firm, and my dad kept saying, Lisa, you have to focus on quality, and you need to focus on the long term. And he said, PwC has a top quality reputation, and I really think you need to think about that. And I'm really glad that I listened to him because the other firm that I was leaning towards doesn't exist anymore.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Well, father knows best, right?
0: <laughs> well, luckily he doesn't tell me too often I told you so, but he does smile a lot when he says, see, I, you he's like, I'm glad you stick with accounting.
2: <laughs> so you've been with PwC your entire career then?
0: Yes. Did right that- from the time I was a summer intern and then I became a full-time associate in September of 89, and I've been there ever since. And even though I've been with the firm, every three or four years, I tend to change roles. Okay. So even though I started as an audit associate in the private company services practice, which was our small emerging growing businesses, um, then I moved over into financial services and I audited banks and mutual funds. Right, And then I moved over to, to Dallas. I moved from Houston to Dallas. So that's another change. And I switched over to some of the healthcare clients. So I did, did a lot of different clients over the years and got to see a lot of different deals. One of the most exciting deals I got to see was helping one of our small banks go through an initial public offering. And that was one of the highlights, particularly in my senior manager year.
2: Okay, you know, actually, I want to ask you about that because that's something I hear from younger professionals about wanting a variety of work. Do you, do, what do you feel led to your ability to move from the small business side to the bank audit side to the healthcare audit side, as as opposed to you know just staying in one of those silos the, the entire time? What what helped you to be able to do that?
0: Well, one of the things I talk about, which I didn't learn till much later in my career, but looking back, I really learned early on to harness the power of wishing out loud. So rather than saying, I'm bored with working with this type of client, I used to network with the partners in the different groups and ask them why they loved what they did. And then I'd say, wow, that sounds really interesting. I wish I'd have an opportunity to try that sometime. And so they would keep that in mind. And whenever they had an opening, they would reach out to me and say, Lisa, would you like to transfer over to our group? So it was really nice to be able to wish out loud and say, you know, I really love this type of work, but I really want to try this type of work. And so it's kind of being in the right place at the right time, but also making sure you're truly wishing out loud because you want those opportunities. And it's nice because you're not being demanding when you wish out loud. You're just saying, gosh, I wish I could have an opportunity to work with you. And what I found over the years is people love to grant the wish. Right? That makes them feel good, too. So I wish I would have known that that was so powerful. I probably would have wished for more earlier.
2: Yeah, I always like to pick out a quote for the beginning of the podcast, if you've listened to some of the final versions, and, and you're giving me many of them already, it's going to be a hard selection when we get to that point. <laughs> Harness the power of wishing out loud. That's, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. So how long were you in audit before you moved into some of the adjacent roles?
0: So curiosity led me to more of the people-oriented roles. When I was okay. a se- second-year senior manager... I found myself gravitating increasingly more and more to the leading and coaching people side of the business. One of the things I got to do was teach the new audit associate entry class, and I always looked forward to that every year. And several of those class members that I've taught are now very successful partners in our firm, so it's nice to run into them and say, hey, remember when I taught your audit entry class? But actually, the way I moved into people-oriented roles, I kind of fell into it because I was very fortunate to work for one of our very wise senior partners, Ed Macker, and at the time, he saw my people skills in me before I did, and he was a very early champion of our women and working moms, even before we had the women's employee resource groups and our mentor moms programs, and I had just come back from maternity leave, so I had a brand new baby, and Ed was very smart, and he kept a good eye on me. He used to remind me, Lisa, you have a new client, your baby, and make sure that I was not becoming a workaholic and and at the expense of my daughter. And so two years into that as a senior manager and being a young working mom, I actually tried to quit the firm while I was working for Ed because my daughter had finally turned two years old and I was traveling back and forth between Houston and Dallas for a client and it literally became a physical challenge because she would no longer fly free on the airplanes and she wouldn't sit still on my lap or stay in the stroller when I was trying to pull my suitcase and audit wheel and push the stroller at the same time she would get out and run. And my husband travels every other week for work because he's also an auditor. So I went into Ed and I said, Ed, I need to resign. And he said, what? I said, I can't keep traveling anymore anymore because it's just too difficult. And he said, well, if you had a role in the firm that didn't require as much travel, would you consider it? And I'm thinking to myself, in audit, you have to travel, right? I couldn't imagine what it might be. And he said, well, we have an open human resources role in the audit department in the Dallas office. Would you like to try it for a year since you haven't found something else yet? And if you don't like it, a year later, you can quit. Just give me some time to backfill the job. And I said, but I don't have an HR degree. And he's like, I'm confident you're smart enough to figure it out. And they gave me the books to study for my senior professional HR exam. And so I could study at night and pass that exam. And I'm so, so lucky that he redirected me to that new career path because that wouldn't have been something I would have chosen on my own. Wow. After that, later, an opening came up for local diversity leader roles in the firm And they approached me again because as a human resource manager at the time, I was a really active member and volunteer in a lot of the local staffing and people events. And since I was already volunteering and presenting about careers in accounting to the local schools and the local diverse student organizations, they said, Lisa, would you like to apply for that diversity leader role? Now, to be honest, my audit skepticism kicked in. I'm like, diversity leader role? I've been with the firm 15 years. Are you sure this is not you know, the flavor of the day. What is that role? Are you sure before I make that leap? And they were sure. They said, we're investing in diversity. You'll be our third market diversity leader. We've already got one in New York and Boston, and we'd like you to apply for the Dallas one.
2: Was this a, a new program that they were implementing? or?
0: Yeah, they were building out their National Office of Diversity and Inclusion and they realized you can't steer it all from headquarters. You actually have to have resources and boots on the ground in each of the different major markets to tailor the strategy. Right? You can't steer everything from New York City at headquarters, but really tailor to what are the needs of that market. And so being in Dallas and spending so much time between Houston, Dallas, and Texas, they tapped me to, to fill that role.
2: Interesting. So your, your work was very formative for that office, if you will. It was
0: very exciting for me to be on the ground floor of, well, what does a diversity leader do? They said, you assess the needs of your market, you listen, and then you build it based on the national strategy. So I so said, what? oh, I can do that. That's just like my audit skills. Be a good listener, build trust with people, find out what their challenges are, and then come
2: up with solutions. That is exciting. I, I'm curious, what, what have you learned about diversity that you didn't know before you got into the area? Or what do be, you feel like we need to
0: know? Yeah. To be honest, I was not an expert in diversity when I started, but I found that simply by being vulnerable about what I didn't know, that other people were more than willing to help and help me build my experience. Literally, they would hand me books to read. They would suggest training. They would introduce me to their connections, to their newsletters and different organizations and resources they were involved with. Because I felt really comfortable leading our women's networks, our working parents networks, even our minority networking events as a working mom and a minority. But I had really little experience as a champion for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered community, LGBT. But my role as a diversity leader was to help lead the launch of the new Out Professional Employee Network. And I was really puzzled. I'm like, I wonder how I'm going to get everyone to trust me and join the networks. And I found that that power of vulnerability and leveraging my connections really helped to build the trusting relationships that I needed to be able to get the work done. Three of my Dallas colleagues at the time who were already out at work, they told me, don't worry, Lisa, we've got your back. And they invited the LGBT members to come to our kickoff meeting and ask them to trust me. And in that first kickoff meeting, I told the group, I said, hello, I'm your diversity leader and I'm your champion. I want to learn more to be a stronger champion for you, but I want to be honest and I want to tell you that here's what you're starting with. I have very limited exposure to the LGBT community. I've only watched Will and Grace and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy on TV. And they all burst out laughing and they gave me a hug and they said, we got you. And they started sharing personal stories and they really opened my eyes so that I could be able to walk better in their shoes and also share their stories as an ally because sometimes they weren't comfortable sharing those stories in bigger public settings. And they were great with reminding me whenever I made mistakes, like, Lisa, you need to use more inclusive language. Stop saying spouse, but say partner or guest. I was like, thank you. So it was really great to get that coaching and support from folks, even though I wasn't a diversity expert in the space. And one of the shocking moments came from me was a year later, they had their end-of-the-year National Out Professional Employees Networks group conference. It's an annual conference, and they had presented me with an award called the Out Professional Employee Network Friend of the Family Award. And for me, family is so important, and to be considered Part of their family just brought tears to my eyes. It's still one of my most treasured awards, even though it's a little paper plaque. To be so warmly welcomed into their community meant a lot to me.
2: Hmm. Wow. You know, I hadn't thought about, I guess, the... I was thinking of diversity as one area, and you've mentioned a few now. This, you've mentioned working mothers, women with children, or I forget how you said that exactly, but what are the different programs that PwC has for diversity? I'm not even sure if I'm asking this right, because I'm very ignorant as well. What are the different programs that PwC has in the diversity area?
0: Now, it's a really good question, Mark, because some people don't know the difference between diversity and inclusion, And even when I was new in the role, okay, diversity is not about counting heads, they explained to me. It's about making heads count. So, it's not just how we're different, but it's how we're the same and how do we leverage those differences for the greater, higher-performing teams. So, all the things that we look at in terms of how we define diversity and inclusion here, we kind of look at like all 36 dimensions on the diversity wheel. So it starts in the center with your personality, right, introverts and extroverts. Then it, those other dimensions, like you mentioned, in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation and abilities. And then as you move out on the diversity wheel, it starts to bring in more of your tenure, your work organizational aspects, your education and all of that. So when someone says to me, oh, I'm not diverse, I'm like, you do have a personality, don't you? So we're all diverse. And so, what are the types of programs we have? They tend to be very grassroots built based on where our employees tell us they need. So, for example, our Out Professional Employees Networks group started when our employees said, we'd love to have an opportunity to connect with each other, connect with leaders, and connect with the community. And so, that group launched in one small office in our Tampa, Florida office and then spread to the other cities. But the other groups we have is we have Women's Inclusion Networks, we have... Black Inclusion Network, Latino Inclusion Network, Pan-Asian Community Network, our Veterans Affinity Network, our Professionals with Disabilities and Disability Caregivers Networks, and overall just general diversity inclusion networks. And we purposely use the word inclusion networks because ours are not affinity groups. We don't limit participation to only members of a certain group because we're trying to build a culture, cultural dexterity and inclusive workplace. So we want everyone to feel welcome. So we open our inclusion networks to members, supporters, allies, and even learners. People who are just curious and want to learn can come to these events.
2: Mm. Okay. You know, I, I'm learning a lot here. You, you mentioned the personality wheel, 36 dimensions. Do, do you know where, where we
0: would yeah, find Yeah, it's it? a diversity yeah. wheel. The concept was, I think if you Google diversity wheel, Gordon Schwartz and Rowe were the authors that wrote a whole book on it, and it, it tends to pop up, and it shows all the different dimensions of diversity. It's really neat because it is a wheel, so visually you can imagine all of the different elements and dimensions of diversity. And I like to always talk about some people will only focus on your external dimensions of diversity, and they forget about the less than visible dimensions of diversity, right? Just looking at someone, you might not recognize those other dimensions that are less than
2: obvious. That is, you mentioned introvert and extrovert earlier or something along those lines that, yeah, I hadn't thought about.
0: And people always ask me, they're like, they're very surprised. They're saying, you're an introvert? You totally had me fooled. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, definition of introvert means that we like to get refueled, and we get our energy from being by ourselves. So, yes, I know how to turn it on when I'm with groups, but I love to also curl up by myself with a book to recharge.
2: <laughs> well, you've had a few, at least, different titles online since the Dallas Diversity Leader. Are those different versions of the same position, or, or have your have your duties changed?
0: So when I started as the Dallas diversity leader, my role was focused on the local market in terms of supporting our employee resource groups and our local leadership teams and tailoring the national diversity inclusion strategy to what we need in Texas. So what New York or San Francisco needs is very different than what Texas might need and helping establish the common language of what diversity inclusion meant. And actually breaking it down into behaviors that every employee could demonstrate in terms of how do you show you are an inclusive leader? How do you show you can be a high performer in whatever environment or whatever teams or groups were asking you to work? And so for me, it was a lot of getting to know people, coaching, mentoring, and leading a lot of discussions, which was great because I love telling stories, but also creating vulnerable spaces for other people to tell their stories. And through the storytelling is where the education came out. And you could go to a training about diversity, but hearing other people's stories is really where we started to see a lot of momentum in terms of people really getting a true understanding of diversity inclusion. One of the things that I hear a lot of times is, oh, well, diversity is nice to have, but they don't always realize that diversity is actually not just a strong business case, but it can also be a life and death matter. And we saw this firsthand during the Ebola crisis in Dallas. I was serving on the board of a non-local nonprofit that deals with health and human services, who were fielding all the calls for questions when the Ebola crisis rolled out. And the Centers for Disease Control warnings were only primarily in English and Spanish at the time. But where the outbreak epicenter was in Dallas was in an area of town that was heavily populated by immigrants, and they spoke over twenty different languages and dialects there. So it became super critical to be able to get a message to those people to please stay in your homes and don't wander out until the quarantine period was over. So luckily, we were able to connect with emergency services to find language translators for all those dialects quickly. So if we didn't have our diversity inclusion lens hat on at the time, it could have been deadly for people if those folks got out of the apartment complex.
2: Wow. Yes. I hadn't thought about it from the standpoint either. So you're you're in charge of the national program now. Yeah. Is that correct? I report to our,
0: our national director over minority initiatives who reports to our chief diversity and inclusion officer, and okay. he reports to our senior chairman and CEO of the firm.
2: Okay. Okay. So you're the national talent management director, is that
0: I am one of them, yes. We have a a whole team of national subject matter experts, so my focus is on supporting our employee resource groups and also our religious inclusion strategy for the firm as well.
2: Okay, okay. Well, what have you enjoyed most about your recent role there at PwC?
0: Well, what I've enjoyed most is... Getting to see how people are really embracing, understanding, and learning about diversity and inclusion, particularly their blind spots or unconscious bias, they really see that that's important to making sure that we don't miss opportunities and being able to connect the dots. And the other thing that happened that I'm really excited about recently to drive home the importance of recognizing blind spots is our U.S. Chairman and CEO, Tim Ryan, asked all of us to participate in blind spots training. And the reason he calls it blind spots training is because we work with a professor who wrote the book on blind spots out of Harvard, but he wanted to make sure we knew that blind spots could potentially be bad for business. And it's important to be aware of our blind spots so that we're making inclusive decisions. And when I was growing up, my dad worked for an oil and gas company and he had shared with me an example of where blind spots almost made them miss an opportunity which I thought this is a great example of why diversity inclusion needs to happen. He said a group of senior executives were all sitting around talking about this proposed new idea to let customers pay for their gasoline at the pump with their credits cards instead of going into the gas stations. And I know for a lot of your learners, they've grown up always paying for the gas at the pump, but there's probably other listeners on this call that remember when you used to have to get out of your car and go inside to pay. And the executives sitting around the table were saying, oh, that's not a good idea. We shouldn't let people pay at the pump. But the group facilitator had asked them to go home and think about it and go back and ask their daughters, their wives, and their mothers what they thought of the idea. And the next day, they realized they all had a blind spot, which almost made them miss this great opportunity because they were surprised that most of the women they asked said, this is a lovely idea. Have you ever tried to run errands in a car full of children and also fill up for gas?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I was thinking about it from the safety standpoint, but there there you go. I have a blind spot.
0: So the other so thing I, I've, you asked about, what else have I enjoyed about my recent role? So because I spend so much time mentoring and coaching people, I wished out loud with one of our chief diversity officers, and I said, I wish I could pursue my professional executive coaching credential. And so they allowed me to go back to school and work full time, and I was able to get my professional executive coaching credential from the University of Texas at Dallas. And now I'm able to use that coaching credential to help people progress to their next level opportunities in the firm in terms of career coaching. And when people say, well, what do you do exactly? I tell them I get to shine diamonds because at this level, I'm working with the best and the brightest that are so strong and so competent that as an executive coach, my job is simply to reflect back their brilliance so they can keep the confidence going to keep executing on their goals and dreams.
2: What's involved? I mean, just at the basic level, I guess. Not every detail, but what's involved with getting your professional executive coaching credential? It's
0: a lot of reading and studying, and and a lot of frameworks and the psychology. In fact, I didn't realize that there was a science behind positive psychology. I used to think that just being grateful was something that was important to do, but I didn't realize that positive psychology shows that the most grateful people are also the most happiest and successful as well. But it was a lot of reading, writing essays, reflection, and also coaching in the moment with peers. So we actually had coaching buddies and we would practice with one another. We would record our coaching conversations and then play them back. And you had to learn how to ask powerful questions, which I already had a lot of practice since I was an auditor, but the way they defined powerful questions were not only open-ended questions, but questions that would cause your coaching clients to pause and reflect and think. And you weren't allowed to ask leading questions. You had to ask the questions to help them uncover the answers within themselves. So people think executive coaches have all the answers. We don't. We're experts at asking the questions to help the client find the answers within
2: themselves. Yeah, it's difficult to break yourself up the habit of asking leading questions.
0: Like, don't you think you should do this? <laughs>
2: We're not allowed to ask <laughs> those types of questions. Exactly. Do you think this would be better? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are. There's a time for leading questions, but may, maybe not at this time.
0: <laughs> the other. The other great thing that I get to do in my role, besides the executive coaching, is really specializing in helping people to bridge cultural differences. One of my areas of expertise is in shaping our national pan Asian leadership development strategy. Pan Asian being all of the different countries. And levels of origin and acculturation from Asia. So sometimes when you say Asia, they only think maybe China or Japan or Korea, but not thinking about the entire continent. And so I do a lot of facilitation and programs to help bridge cultural differences through storytelling, right? Helping people to recognize that their experiences are not right or wrong, they're just different and being able to view those behaviors through different lenses. So when someone says, "Oh, I never realized that that person was being quiet to be respectful to me. I thought they were being quiet because they didn't have a point of view," right? Or I thought they were being quiet because they were shy. It's like, did you ever think they're waiting for you to ask them a direct question? Because perhaps they didn't grow up in an environment where they were allowed to offer unsolicited opinions. Oh, so I really get excited when I'm able to help people bridge those cultural differences.
2: Yes, yes. My wife happens to be Japanese, and she's first generation here in, in the U.S., and so I've been exposed a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, and I'm third generation, so my grandparents came here, my parents were born here, and I'm like the third and a lot of those cultural values transcend generations, right? They're so deeply held. So it, it is interesting to be able to help people compare and contrast.
2: Now you mentioned blind spots earlier. What other blind spots do you think are common that we should be aware of in the diversity area?
0: There's a lot of different blind spots. And I would encourage people to, as part of our U.S. Chairman and CEO's pledge is part of the CEO Action Pledge. We've actually created and shared a free Blind Spots training that's available to the public. It's a series of four very short videos. If you were to play them back-to-back, it's less than 10 minutes, but it goes over the frequently encountered different types of unconscious biases that kind of fall under those blind spots umbrellas. So similarity bias, right? We love people that are very similar to us. When you meet someone and you talk about yourself and they say, me too, you automatically have this instant bond. So there's always similarity bias that could get in your way. There's also confirmation bias. So we tend to ask leading questions because we think we know the answer, right? So we might ask someone that's really tall and athletic looking, oh, you play basketball in college, right? Right. Even when they're telling us no, we're like, no, really, really, you did play, didn't you? (laughs) Because we have a (laughs) confirmation bias that we're looking to confirm what we already thought. And I think I run into that quite a bit because I travel so much for work. People on the airplane sitting next to me will be, wow, your English is so great. (laughs) I was, like, I, was, I was like, thank you so much. I, I learned not to get offended. I was like, thank you so much. You can't hear my Brooklyn accent. My parents were really strict about speaking English at home because they didn't want me to grow up with an accent, and they would just start <laughs> laughing.
2: <laughs> it's funny. Where would we find this free blind spot so train? If you
0: go if to pwc.com slash okay. US slash blind spots. And the videos are there with a free discussion guide that you can also download that asks you to reflect on what are the types of biases, how can biases get in your way, and what can you do about them in terms of challenging your assumptions.
2: Perfect. I will put that in the show notes that go online. That's very useful. Thank you. Thank you very much. A couple more questions before we get to the final questions because we're hitting on about 30 minutes. What advice would you have for younger professionals coming into PwC or a firm like PwC? What wisdom would you like to pass on?
0: I would encourage them if they're interviewing with a firm to do their homework, not only just reading the websites in advance, but try to meet as many of the professionals as they can to get a sense of why they love to work there, right? What got them to join? What keeps them there? What's the different career paths and mobility options? because the national firms have great access to global assignments and very unique career experiences that may or may not be available in other places. So I always encourage them if they're thinking about public accounting and they're thinking about going to one of the large firms to do their homework by meeting the people.
2: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thinking back on your own career, if you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of advice, (laughs) what do you think that may be?
0: Oh, I know what that would be. I should have told my younger self that, Lisa, you need to be bolder in managing your moments. You need to be more brave and more gutsy. I tended to be a little bit more shy and a little bit hesitant and very timid and unsure of myself. I always had this voice in my head that says, Lisa, are you really good enough? You've never done this before. Do you really know what you're doing? But I've learned over time that We're smart enough to figure it out. Yes, you know what you're doing. And we have to believe in our own strengths and connections and surround ourselves with other people who will support us and encourage us. So instead of worrying so much about being liked, I would have invested a lot more of my energy in being brave and gutsy and put myself out there to build more trusting relationships early, right? Rather than thinking, oh, these people are too busy for me. I don't want to bother them. I found that people have always made the time to connect when I reached out and said, I'd love to learn more about what you do, because the worst you can get is a no, right? So I've learned to go ahead and ask and be bold. And I even say, if I'm not getting a no, at least once a day, I'm not being bold enough. And I had to reframe the no so that I didn't feel like it was the end of the world. So when someone tells me no now, it's like, oh, well, that's just a no, not now. That's not a no, not ever.
2: (laughs) That's very true. Well, you've obviously come a long way because you don't strike me as someone that's shy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that willingness to ask for help was really hard because it's a huge weakness for me to ask for help. I used to think you should be smart enough to figure it out. And what I've learned is when you ask for help and you wish out loud, people love to help and be a part of something. They love to get engaged and be excited to help someone else. So you're actually helping others to feel better when you ask for help.
2: There you go. Well, there's three questions I end every podcast with so that we have some good consistency between the episodes. And the first one, usually the easiest, is what has been your proudest moment?
0: Well, it's a lot of different moments, but one of the most proud moments that sticks out to me was when I had to do my very first large presentation as a diversity inclusion leader. I was used to giving presentations and teaching in the classroom, but this was one of those presentations where you're in a huge auditorium on a big stage with light shining in your eyes that you can't even see past the fifth row. Yes. And so the proud moment for me was stretching my comfort zone. And being comfortable being uncomfortable because I used to be one of those people that want to script out everything and want everything I say to be perfect. And I realized that you can't script everything. You've got to be courageous and get up there and get on the stage and, and teach. So I was up there teaching about what does it take to be an inclusive leader. And one of the things I had shared was you have to be open to feedback. And at the end of my presentation, I smiled big. I was so proud of myself. And then they said, do you have time for questions? And I'm like, uh-oh. That's unscripted. I'm not ready for that. And I said yes because I'm such a people pleaser. At that time, I didn't know how to say no. And a woman in the back yells from the back, "Are you really open to feedback?" And I thought, oh no, gulp. Oh. And, and I couldn't see her, so I'm like squinting and looking. I said, "Could you please come forward?" That was my stall tactic because I really <laughs> did hear the question, <laughs> but I need her to walk forward so I could hear it again. And then she, she repeated herself. She said, "Are you really open to feedback?" And I just told everyone that to be an inclusive leader, you have to be open to feedback. So I said, yes, certainly. And she said, well, I know this wasn't your intention, but when you led the icebreaker at the beginning of this session, you said, please stand up, please stand up. But you may not have recognized that you probably could be a lot more inclusive if you would have said, please raise your hand or nod your head, because there's people way here in the back with crutches and wheelchairs that couldn't participate gulp, right? So I smiled. I thanked her for the feedback. I said, thank you so much for the courage to share, not only for my own learning, which is this is a moment I'll never forget, but also for helping everyone else in the room to never make this mistake either. And so I was particularly proud of how I handled that very awkward moment because it built confidence in me to handle questions going forward in future presentations. And also, it reminded me, bring the person closer to you so you can see their nonverbal, so you can listen to the tone of their voice and not get defensive, but really lean into the question and, and focus on making sure that you're delivering what they really need to hear.
2: You know, that, that sounds like one of those moments where to you, it, it felt a little awkward, but in reality, you handled it in the best way possible. Honestly, you're right. A lot of good came out of that. Well, tell us about a mistake you've made and, and what you learned from it. And frankly, the bigger, the better. <laughs> oh, boy.
0: Well, you know, it's really hard to talk about your biggest mistakes in a public setting like this. But one of the things I've had to learn to do is take care of myself more. I tend to put everyone else before myself, taking care of my teams, my clients, my family, my volunteer work in the community. And I would find myself getting exhausted because I would overextend myself. And where this became a huge, huge error was that when my close colleague of seven years at work passed away unexpectedly, I got so distraught that I couldn't even think straight. And I was having a really hard time focusing at work. And we were working on so many close projects together, I just put my head down and said, I've got to finish this work for her. And we were one of those couples that worked together so closely every day that we could practically finish each other's sentences. So finally, I had the courage to say, I think I need to take a time off. I need to help her mother plan the funeral because I know she was the primary caregiver for her mom. And so here I was trying to juggle my work and also juggle her work, help her mother plan the funeral. And at the same time, help my husband care for his sick mother who was fighting cancer and Alzheimer's as well. So it was a real blur. And during that tough three-month period, not only to lose a close colleague, but on the flight home from her funeral, my mother-in-law was admitted to the hospital. So I landed and went straight to the hospital. And then I had to ask for more help. So I had to ask for another week off to help take care of my mother-in-law with relatives flying in to see her in intensive care before she passed away. And through all of that, I was so focused on helping everyone else that I didn't take care of myself. And I got super sick, super exhausted, and I practically hit rock bottom. And I learned that's not a good thing to do because when you're that tired and exhausted, you tend to come out and sound very harsh and not very caring. So I was lashing out at other people. And unfortunately, I lashed out at my teenage daughter at the time. And that very day that I told her, well, just figure it out yourself, was the day she had a really bad car accident. And the car was completely totaled, but she was fine. And I just replayed that awful conversation in my head. And I said, Lisa, never let yourself get that exhausted again. Never let yourself not ask for help because you can't sweat the small stuff. And my teammates pulled me aside and they said, Lisa, you need to be comfortable asking for help because you need to realize that when you don't ask for help, it actually makes us feel like you don't trust us, that you don't trust us to do the work. It's actually hurting our feelings. And the only way that you can get through grief is to let it go. And so we're trying to help you and we need you to let go. And so when I hear that song, Frozen song, let it go, I just smile because that's one of the biggest colossal mistakes I've made was to get comfortable letting it go, and sometimes when you think all hope is lost, you have to let the angels in your path help, and so now I've learned to look for those angels in my path, embrace that, and pay it forward whenever I can.
2: Thank you for sharing that because it's very appropriate for our audience because as accountants, we're deadline-oriented, responsible, do what it takes, work-hard kind of people, and we need to hear that every once in a while to to take care of ourselves more. You're right, because once you get to that super-exhausted point, it takes a whole lot longer to recover.
0: Yeah, that's why the flight attendants always say, put the the mask on yourself first for oxygen before you help others. It's really good advice.
2: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Well, now, you can use that one, but last question, and then we'll say goodbye. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Like I said, we can't use the
0: stewardess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I said earlier, the best advice I've ever received was be grateful and be kind to yourself and others. And keep a gratefulness journal, right? So every day Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm writing down three things that I'm grateful for because it keeps me focused and appreciative and humble. And also, after I studied, I found out positive psychology tells you that gratefulness also are the most happiest people.
2: So be grateful. A gratefulness journal. That's a great idea. Well, thank you so much. I knew I was going to learn a few things, but I was thinking more in terms of your personal career path. I hadn't thought about how deep we were going to delve into diversity and and the blind spots training. This is going to be really educational for our listeners. I've learned a lot as well. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out for this, Lisa.
0: Wow, this is really fun, Mark. You made it so easy. Oh, well,
2: good, good. Well, that's my job. Thank you. You've been a wonderful guest. I hope you have a great weekend.
0: Thank you. You too.
1: Well, that was Lisa Ong, a National Director with the Office of Diversity with Price Waterhouse Troopers. I know that all of our episodes have some educational content contained in the interviews, but this has got to be one of the top in terms of just pure educational value. I really appreciated Lisa sharing the information about blind spots, the 36 dimensions on the personality wheel, and and even the online resources that PWC has that are available to us for free regarding identifying blind spots and biases. Really good stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Life in the Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Please do remember to share the podcast on our home website, whereaccountantsgo.com, with a friend. If you'd like to subscribe via email, you can also do that at the whereaccountantsgo.com site. Simply visit the site and click on the subscribe button right there on the top of the podcast page. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back soon. There's more to come.